Welcome to the wonderful world of dance, bringing you exclusive interviews with top dancers and choreographers and reviews of the world's best companies across the globe. You can find lots more on our website at thewonderfulworldofdance.com. Hi, this is Savannah Saunders from The Wonderful World of Dance and today I'm excited to introduce Bri Adams, dancer, choreographer and artistic director of Hack Ballet and I'm really excited to learn about this ballet company so welcome Briar. hi thanks for joining us hey hi so let's get started tell us when and why personally you started dancing in the first place when I started dancing yeah I was a little girl and my mom sent me to ballet lessons like every other little girl in the local area, like, I think that's really common, actually, um, especially when I was growing up, like, little girls went to ballet class, and little boys got sent to football, and it wasn't, it, like, there was a bit of gender awareness back then, but not as much as now, so, like, it was really very pink, and, like, I mean, actually, little girls' ballet classes are still very pink, and, um, and kind of... Interesting, because, um, where did you grow up? I grew up in Box Hill, in which is a suburb of Melbourne. So it's like named after Box Hill in the UK, but it's actually in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne. My um, my grandmother built a house with her mother. So it's my great grandmother and my grandmother, um, and my and they and I have um, my grandmother had a brother as well. Um, it was when it was that area was being developed from it was used to be orchards you know like farmlands mm. and it was the end of a tram line coming out from melbourne central and um it was like new housing development so lots of weatherboard bungalows were going up on a quarter acre block typical australian oh. house with kind of like a wide frontage and a big yard and um yeah there's space like planted all the garden out and everything. Um, and then I went to the local ballet school and that was sort of started roughly around the same time. There's a, an association, um, Boxville Ballet Association, so it's like a voluntary committee-run um, non-profit organisation. And they started a ballet group in the area. So it's big on um, Chiquetti style and um, that they provide classes to the area. It became quite a big school. Um and then it's just the areas changed so much. Like that was my grandparents. So my that's my great grandmother. That um, my great grandfather died from an illness. Okay. So my great grandmother was a single mom. Mm -hmm. Um, so she she built that house and they lived there um since 1941 and she died in 86. So like yeah, 40 years and it, they really saw the area really um change. And then my dad moved into the house where my grandmother. My great grandmother died, so then I grew up in that house as well. Wow! So yeah, and, and I mean, in like in, in the UK, that's not long, you know, that's not a lot of history. But in yeah. Australia, like, oh, four generations in one house, like, amazing. Yeah, that is uh, quite a lot of uh, history for a good old young country. Well, for, for Australia, yeah, it's very different now. There, there, it's a huge, there's a lot of new development in that area big Asian um, population moving to that area, lots of, um, they're putting up huge towers, like 50-storey flats wow. around the train station. So from an area that was, like when my great-grandmother moved there, it was purely orchards, like, like apple trees, as far as I could see. And then now it's like a major, major centre. Wow. And so, you, hub. so you were d dancing at the local ballet school. Um, yeah. How how long were you there, and sort of how did you, or when did you think, well, maybe this is something I wouldn't mind doing uh, for a career? Mm -hmm. So, um, so I I started taking lessons at the age of four, mm -hmm. and actually, I I still have a very strong connection with that school. Um, there the school has a philosophy that's very open. So they don't, they wouldn't necessarily um, like make it their main um, 
goal to train dancers for professional work. So people, some people do, who do go to that school do end up pursuing it um, as a career working in the industry. But actually, it's a community organization and it's very accepting. So they actually, there's always been a strong ethos of um, uh, accessibility and we used to have dancers who maybe had disabilities or mm-hmm. um, didn't have sort of like the perfect ideal body type um, and it was sort of like all welcome and very much focus on choreography and performances and the and the contribution of all of the dancers to like creating the shows and everyone kind of pitched in. So there's this really great community feeling, which actually I'm sure a lot of schools have this. It's pretty much how the arts runs, right? Like lots of voluntary labor, lots of women contributing, mm-hmm. lots of parents helping out people, you know, building sets and making costumes and doing flyering and coming to the shows and supporting um, the students. So, and it's all ages as well, which actually um, wasn't super common back then, but now there's a huge explosion of adult ballet schools mm. um, and adult ballet classes and that's really popular. And that back at, when I was going to school, we always had classes from the age of like um, when I, you know, I was three, there were three-year-olds, four-year-olds. I was four and a half when I started. But we had dancers up until the age of 90 or, you know, like really wide spectrum. And then by the time I was a teenager, I was taking classes like the, the open adult groups. And that was like, you know, like all ages. Um, and they had folk dance and modern dance and tap and lots of different, um, they, we used to have workshops with different choreographers coming. My um, my main ballet teacher, her name's Jan Turner, and she worked professionally in t- television. Mm-hmm. Um, and she knew a lot of dancers from Australia and abroad. And we used to have some workshops. Um, from international dance teachers and choreographers. Um, and the modern dance method that I did um, was set up by Jeanette Liddell, I think that's right, and she um, and she designed a modern dance training method that was kind of based on like the 1950s style jazz and also, and then like also Afro... Um, African style, like like a uh, Harlem um, or, or Alvin Ailey style, like yeah. um, spirituals, and um, and we and we sort of had to have a more of a blended training. So you had your kind of maybe um, the physical, like the the um, um, conditioning exercises, were a bit more like Cunningham style, mm-hmm. and then and with articulations and um, your your kind of uh, anatomical positions um, and technical stuff like jumps and turns, whatever. And then um, we also had this stylized African style of movement as well, which that really helped with um, being more creative about how you use the body and floor work and different rhythms and um, isolating different body parts. Um, but we always did choreography. So like I think from the age of about 10, my teachers really encourage us to, um, like, for our end of sh- end of year shows, we would always make a group choreography where all of the dancers contributed, and we would wow. negotiate to like um, create dances together. And I think I'm I'm not really sure what made me so to, like determined to pursue it because um, my parents are both artists, and my parents were artists in the 80s when there was actually still quite a lot of funding for independent artists in Australia and the funding was drying up. So by the time I went to high school, there was, you know, like the early 90s, there was a big, there was a recession and money was being cut and um, there wasn't, it wasn't necessarily like a, um, a, maybe a positive financial decision to be like, to going into being an artist. I think my, I really just wanted to be good. Like I wanted to get good training and to sort of explore my own potential as a dancer and how, like, and to learn a lot and to be really fit and and have all the skills that I could manage to acquire. So I think, I don't know, I feel like I 
I always had these kind of two um, competing um, goals, which was I needed to get, you know, my my kind of um, general education, go to university, um, have qualifications to so-called fall back on, like, the, you, you know, oh, like, what are you going to do for a day job kind of thing? Yeah. Um, but I, then I was always just really interested in pursuing performing arts and I think I maybe I didn't really have a perception of what the industry was actually like so my my school there was no pressure from within my ballet school of like you need to you know this is what you need to do more classes or you need to this is the training you need to do or you need to go and get a job in the industry that that wasn't really a, a theme there um, but what they would do was if you were interested in pursuing it more seriously, they would then offer connections to other schools where I could supplement my training at my main school. So I went to um, classes with other teachers in Melbourne who were like more um, experienced in um, classical ballet mm-hmm. and some contemporary as well to sort of like add on to my, my Shaketi basic training. So I was doing, I was doing my Shaketi um, advanced and diploma classes. Um, I think I also did my intermediate with Will Cannell. She was a um, very, uh, very dedicated teacher in Melbourne. And Anne Butler, also another very um, high profile teacher. She now works at the Victorian College of Arts Secondary School. Actually, both of them taught um, at DCA um, and VCAS. And then also Lorraine Blackburn, another Chiquetti teacher. And then I started taking contemporary classes and I went to Deakin University for contemporary dance. And I also, um, when I when I finished uh, high school, I enrolled at uni. So I, like, I auditioned for, um, I auditioned for the VCA dance program, but they didn't take me. Um, so I went to Monash and did performing arts and I was sort of doing drama and um, visual arts and visual culture and also studying chemistry and thinking, oh, well, what else am I going to do as well to get a job to make money? Yeah. Um, and I I had an idea that maybe one day I'll do physio or medicine. Okay. Um, but I had that sense that like, oh, that is something I can do after I've done my dance career. Mm-hmm. And there was a couple, I remember having a couple of conversations with people like, um, I, when I went to Lorraine Blackburn School, there was a dancer there whose name is, I think, Zach Jones, who he now has his own um, contemporary dance slash martial arts slash sort of like gyrotonic um, movement training methods. Um, but we had a conversation where he was like, look, if you really want to pursue dance seriously, you should go to full-time training. And I was like, okay, yeah, fair enough. And he'd, I think he'd worked... Um, around Australia as a freelancer and maybe I think he did go to Australian Valley School and, you know, was more like in in contact with the dancers who were at that other, you know, on the on the professional track. Mm. And so he was he was really like um encouraging. So then I auditioned for the National Theatre mm. and I went to the National Theatre Valley School and that was just when it was a couple of years after Beverly Fry had started um, as a director there, and Beverly Fry is an amazing, very motivating person. She's she's a very highly energetic, and she was very encouraging. So I started training there just part time for a year, and she, you know, welcomed me to come take class a couple of times a week. So I was, I was taking my, you know, my Shaketi, um syllabus classes, and I was taking a couple of contemporary classes, and then I was also um, doing class with their um, in their like, it was kind of like part of, uh, they, they just opened their um, diploma, like the, the professional level training, they opened up to, to um, extra dancers to take class. So like there were some professionals who would come and take those classes alongside the, the dancers in training. Um, yeah, and Beverly said to me like, hey, so what are you doing? Do you, do you want to audition? And I was like, well, I guess, like, I don't know. I had, I kind of had this sense that I'm not sure that I'll, I'm good enough. Like, I don't know if I'm going to make it. Um, I haven't come from a background of being really pressured to um, achieve a, like um, a, a high professional standard in my training, but like I'm very 
keen and motivated and interested and I want to perform and I'm interested in choreography. And she was like, yeah, look, it's definitely possible. You just have to work really hard. But do you understand? Like, I'd been out of school a couple of years. So she was like, well, are you going to be comfortable with the fact that, like, you're a bit older than the general cohort that are coming in? Because mm-hmm. most, um, I think it's still the case, most dancers go full-time training much younger. Like, yeah. a lot of dancers at that time were, um, they would quit their academic school and they would do their final years of school by correspondence so that they could take dance classes full-time in the daytime and then they would do their school, like, after hours. So there were a few girls in that position who were, like, 15 or 16 doing dance full-time and then also taking, like, their English and mathematics and psychology maybe after, like, after school. And the, the program there would allow you they had um they had a teacher on staff who would supervise the distance ed students to make sure that they got their higher like it was it's a VCE so um like a like A level tier um but I'd already finished high school and I'd gone into university and I was taking p- class part time working part time and then like trying to just do as much dancing as possible. And, yeah, um, Beverly offered me a place on the course for the following year. And she said, look, I've seen you dance. I know you work hard. You don't need to do a formal audition. Mm. You just need to fill out the forms and and, and you've got a place. And I was like, oh, wow, that's really exciting. Um, and then <laughs> and then I, um, I actually, so we had that conversation. And literally, like, the next week, I got ill and I was ill for, like, a month or something and then I and then it was the end of the year and I was like working and I had end of year shows and I didn't see her again until the following January and I was like so um I'm here to take my place and she's like oh I didn't know that you were definitely coming (laughs) and I was like yes so anyway apocryphal story but I so then I went to the national I did my two years there it was very 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 hard Mm -hmm. and um and at the end of it I still didn't feel like I was ready um, but but then again, I knew that I was already older than most of the people graduating from full-time training. Um, so I was kind of like, well, all right, got to do this. So I actually went back to uni for one more year and I was doing like part-time ballet, part-time contemporary dance. I went back to Deakin um, and I was working and saving money. And then I was like, right, I've set my sights. I'm going abroad and that was always like so um, I think for a lot of dancers in Australia it's always the goal like you um. you kind of get told there's work in the rest of the world so you have to go out and find it and um, and and look for it so I think I did spend a, t- a, a bit of time reflecting because I because ballet is difficult and I have I have my strengths and weaknesses as in my physical, you know, um, my corporeal existence as a dancer. Um, I got a lot of injuries and I had to push through, you know, learning about my body and learning um, a lot how to manage things. So I wasn't, and like I'm a very creative person and my interests are very diverse. So I wasn't super convinced that being in the core of a classical company was exactly what I wanted. But I did want um, I did want to experience more of the world. Like I had a very sheltered experience. Uh, like apart from ballet, I didn't really know that much about anything. <laughs> um, and, and I sort of wanted to get out into the world and find my place and find what I was interested in and find people that were on the same level as me and were into the same stuff as me and that kind of like I was looking for my tribe kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I guess Beverly Fire planted that seed of like you could go abroad and you might find this somewhere else, you know? Like I I did, a, I had a couple of auditions in Australia. Um, but, you know, in Australia, there's not the volume of stuff happening there. Like there's very good schools. And there's very high quality productions, but it's a big country and things are very spread out and there's not as much touring that happens. So you don't get international companies coming there as much. Like maybe maybe now more a bit, but um, but back then it was really like 
there was Melbourne Festival once a year and there'd be a couple of other tours, but it was really sparse. Absolutely. So if you didn't get into like the local, you know, there's, there's the, the national ballet company and there's a couple of state ballet companies and there's a couple of contemporary um, state companies and then there's a, a few, you know, a handful of um, independent choreographers working and people were, you know, they would apply for grants and get and do projects. Um, but it just wasn't so, there just wasn't so much going on. And the people that got those jobs tended to be people that went to three schools in the whole country and everybody else kind of, I don't know what happened to us, but we all went abroad. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I just, and also I, I just think I was ready for an adventure. Like uh, things were, I think that sense of I was really sheltered and I wanted to get out of Australia and see the world. Yeah. That was really appealing to me. And, uh, and the idea that maybe somewhere else, will be people that are into the same stuff I'm into and and like it won't be so difficult to find people that share my my passions um and actually when I first moved say that again the tribe that you talk about finding your tribe well that's yeah now that's how I feel like I think I went looking for it Mm. at that time and now I feel like now I feel like maybe I have to make it, which is that, so that's, then we're getting to like, why did I stop my own company? Yeah. Like, like I feel like I went looking for someone else to provide that, that feeling for me. And maybe it, it was never going to be somewhere else. And I actually, that's, it's one of those things with maturity. You hear that story a lot, don't you? That people, you go on your journey of discovery, looking for it somewhere else. And you end up finding it in yourself with whatever you've incorporated from what, what you've learned on your journey. You realize that you have more power and more agency to do stuff for on your own rather than waiting for somebody else to hand it to you. And, and also, maybe it's also that thing of struggle because I'm one of those people that didn't get a lot of opportunities handed to me. Like I, you know, I went to a lot of auditions and didn't get anything and then was like, okay, well, what am I going to do since nobody gave me a job? Am I just going to give up? Or because some, people, some people do that, right? Some people go to ballet school full-time for 10 years. They, they graduate. They go to auditions for the first six months. If they don't get a job, they quit. Like literally people who were like super seriously amazing dancers, they were super into it. And then they didn't get a job and they think, okay, oh, well, that's it for me. Because it's all about that external approval. Mm-hmm. So... And that, one, and, know, and that one track, that one career track as well. So, um, yes, and and maybe those schools that do prepare you for the profession in inverted commas, mm. those schools only can teach you to be the kind of dancer that those schools know how to prepare you for. Does that make sense? Like, absolutely. The school is a product of the teachers and the people who work there, what their experience was. And the world is so different now to what it was 20 or 30 years ago. So, like, I've already been out of school. This will be probably my 15, 16-something years. Mm. What year is it? 14 years out of since I graduated. The world now is already different to when I graduated. And from since when my teachers graduated, it's like, pulls apart, you know, politically, economically, the amount of change in technology communication. Actually, you know, we do have some skills that are, that do carry us through, that are transferable, but there's so many different, like, ways that the world operates now where it's not just like you only get to have a job if the state company employs you on a full-time contract because, like, that virtually doesn't exist. And... And actually, the just the you know the gatekeepers and the methods of delivery, like the way that art is consumed by people, it's not it's just not the same, right? Like there's so much more that's mediatized and through technology rather than live, like people sitting in a theater watching a show, and that happens as well. I, I don't know. It's really I feel like we're all in a big soup, and nobody really knows what's happening. And there are these existing structures, but then there's also all these different new things yeah. that are influencing us. Yeah. So, like, everyone I know now is a freelancer, and pretty much everyone I know, even if they have worked for one of the big state ballet companies, those people have always all been freelancers and will be freelancers again. They're all cycling in and out of jobs. You know, a lot of 
a lot of people get, you know, a one-year contract or a six-month contract with a big company, but those are rare. And then those people are back to being freelancers again later on. Mm. And we, we're sort of like all in the same boat of, of trying to eke out an existence and doing lots of different things that are sort of related to our practice as dancers. Um, but it's, it's tough to, to envision. Like, I think for a long time I felt really guilty and ashamed that I hadn't made it in inverted commas again. Like, oh, you know, I'm going abroad and I'm going to get a job in a company. And mm -hmm. that, that when I've done that, then I will have made it. And I think for about 10 years, I felt really bad that that hadn't happened. And now I'm starting to realize that actually, like, maybe that just, it's just not, I mean, that's not, that's not everything. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's really interesting maybe I, to say that. And maybe I wouldn't have been that happy <laughs> doing yeah. that either. Like, um, so that, yeah, you do. And now you do actually hear a lot more from people. Like, people are more accessible dancers in these big companies, choreographers in these big companies directors, people who are, you know, maybe the, the creative side, the production side or the um, company managers, where they, they don't have so much of a voice. But you do hear more, you know, on social media or online, people writing articles, publishing blog posts, doing interviews, where you hear what people say and, they, and you know, these Q&As, like where you go and meet the choreographer and you can, or there's lots of networking events. So there's actually... Or whether or not that's just I'm more mature and I have more, my network, my personal network is bigger and I'm getting access to these people. But I feel like now I know that those people are just people. And actually, I forgot where I was going with this, but more like maybe when I left Australia, when I was in school, I had no idea what it was really like to be a professional dancer. All I knew was turning up every day to do class mm -hmm. and having my director at ballet school tell me what it was going to be like. But I had no real experience of that. And then coming out into the real world, maybe like I've had a few freelance jobs and I know people who've had various, you know, positions in various companies. And now I feel like I have a much better understanding of the reality. Um, so I feel like a lot of the things that I know now as a freelancer, I kind of had to learn as I went. And it's been, I've been also catching the same wave that. Um, the rest of the world has been with Facebook and Instagram and video yeah. and YouTube and there's and then you start having to make choices about what you do and is it making you happy? So, like I've just been this, this just in the last few days I've been contemplating my um, my attitude to social media and my and whether I care very much about sort of. Um, producing my Instagram feed and mm. uploading stuff to YouTube um, and is that actually the, the thing I want to do with my art? Um, so, yeah, like, it, you know, is the thing that you're doing because you think it's going to help you get to do the thing you want to do, is it actually helping? How can you evaluate that, right? Like, yeah, especially in the current environment of data protection and these, you know, hashtag me too and um, the control of the worldwide media by these small number of organizations based in like tax havens that are, you know, they're selling your data to an advertising firm. Um, I just think, okay, like dance sits within this really interesting social position where all these influences feed into it, like gender and body image and um, modernity and uh, things about like uh, being health conscious and being like positivity and um, and kind of how how self critical we are or how much we manufacture our own image um, and and kind of modern life is it maybe clashes with dance quite awkwardly in terms of the traditions of dance. I actually looked like just today. So maybe talking about the benefits of social media, one person that I is on my friends list posted an article by a dancer, I think she's in New York City Ballet, mm -hmm. about feminism in ballet. And it was all, the article was saying all the stuff that I've been thinking for the last 20 years about how gendered ballet is and how frustrating it is that the art that we are exposed to like reproduces these old-fashioned gender roles and institutions that we might not necessarily 
want to maintain or reproduce if we if we could have more agency over it. Yeah. So I guess like those are the things, you know, like when I, when I went to auditions when I first graduated and I was told, Hey, you're a lovely dancer, but you need to lose weight. Like that. We just should not be having that conversation anymore. Do you know what I mean? Like, like, like ballet will die. Dance will die. If it doesn't include everyone and everyone's experience and kind of, make it I mean I know like there's you know there's the benefits of elitism of making it out to be this really um aspirational thing that everybody wants to be like but there's also casualties to that which which are all these people that feel alienated by it and I guess that's one of the reasons why I make work um apart from my own you know narcissistic desire to see my own ideas out in real life like um I am very um, in, reflective about that and um, I overthink a lot about whether my work is actually relevant to others if it's just, you know, me thinking my thoughts and doing what I want to do. Um, but then, you know, on my on my positive upswings, I feel like actually like that, that passion is what other people find inspiring. Mm-hmm. And if I lead by example and I do stuff that I that when I see it, I get excited, that will encourage other people to also do stuff that they get excited by. Um, And I definitely have noticed that a lot of the people that talk to me or comment to me or want to interact with me or discuss dance with me or get my advice, like, they're people who struggle with the same kind of stuff that I struggle with, like, not feeling like the classical ballet institutions represent them or that they fit in or that they have the opportunities that they feel like they really want to pursue but they still have passion and energy and excitement and ideas and they um yeah and and there's there's something that I do that's unique to me that if I just do my thing then people can appreciate that thing um, tell us, so about, I, tell us like, about that thing. Tell us about your work and tell us about your choreography. Uh, I find it super hard to talk about. <laughs> um, and actually, if you if you were sitting in the room with me, you would see my body moving. Um, and actually, like, I, I talk my hands. I do that classic dancer thing of, like, I demonstrate with my body what I think. Mm-hmm. Um and so, all right, well, I'll, then I'll start as a starting point the things that I have, that I have made. Um, so my, so, the, so we're doing Edinburgh Fringe this August. Mm-hmm. And I decided to, I decided to bring a very short, like, snapshot triple bill of, three of my works that I have done before in various formats and I am giving myself the opportunity to present those works in this format so, so you know it's at Fringe you get um, like an hour time slot and within that hour you've got to get in and get out and do your thing mm-hmm. um, so so it's like okay well you're you know you're going to have about 40, 45 minutes of dance and within that it's very free, whatever you want to do. So I'm bringing three works. One is To the Edge, um, then we've got Argyll and then we have Grace, um, which goes by various names. Um, but I have, yeah, that that one is a, is this long, I've had this project going for a long, a couple of years on um PTSD and trauma and looking at the impact of relationships um, when someone experiences PTSD and trauma. Um, inspired, but I also uh, have, sorry. What, what inspired the subject, um, PTSD and trauma? That's quite a, that's quite a, a subject to tackle. What, what, why, why tackle that? Maybe, but then this, there's also this other thing, which like a lot of the time choreographers, 
talk about their process mm-hmm. and I tend to do this too. Like I'll talk about what inspired me and what I'm thinking about when I'm making choreography, but you might not see those things in the work mm-hmm. and I don't care if you don't see what I'm seeing as long as you like or find interesting what I made. So um, I think actually what I find interesting to watch is the like the physical expression of the emotion and the connection between the people. So I really love watching duets and pas de deux mm-hmm. um, and I find... I guess I maybe I have a personal fascination with connections between people in the space. Mm-hmm. So I don't enjoy watching solos as much as I enjoy watching partnerships. Um, and maybe it's just an obsession. Um, yeah, just just something I really like mm. watching and thinking about and making. Um, and so that subject, it was, it came out of a personal story, like someone I know was affected by family violence. Huh? And that grew into this long project because like after I started the project, then my family went through some really tough times. And then maybe that, so like the, the subject has morphed as I have morphed and I'm, I'm also in my work feeling like I need to give myself more space to not necessarily create artifacts. Mm-hmm. So I used to think that I was, um, my job was to create a sort of repertoire of, of art, uh, dance artwork as objects. So like I make this work and I'll put that down and I'll make the next work and I'll put that down and I'll make the next work and I'll put, and it's like I'm putting them in a bank vault mm-hmm. and then they're there as these kind of like historical things that you can go and look back at and, oh, yeah, you know, like the life the way, you know, repertoire is redone and redone mm-hmm. over again, the same works tour around the world and get made on different ballet companies like your classical canon, Swan Lakes and Sleeping Beauties, etc. And I now think that that's not really what I'm doing and every time I make a piece, like affected by who I am and who the people are that are in it and the circumstances that we're doing it under. So there are these like central themes, but then I sort of, um, and that's part of the, it's part of my, like the, the idea behind the name of hack ballet, that it's, it's always a hack. It's always put together from what's in front of me. Um, so I'm a, I'm a choreographer that tinkers a lot. And I'll make changes constantly and um, and I'll always be kind of like making it work in the moment, which means I'm, I'm comfortable, like I'm a lot more comfortable with improvising and taking ownership of material than some other classically trained dancers are who are much more like I want to be told exactly what to do mm. and then to practice it and practice it and practice it until it's perfect and then to know yes it's right or no it's not right and that's kind of that's one side of classical training that's really beautiful but can be restricting um so I really love myself being able to like you know like improvise and and expand upon an idea in the moment because that's that's a beautiful live performance right like that's what you get from doing something as an event that only happens in that moment of time versus you know, recording it on a video and then watching the same thing over and over again forever. So I kind of enjoy both. Um, but the thing that's interesting about live is that energy that you get from, like, knowing that you are in this moment with these people, you know, that precise thing, and that's never going to happen again. It's just so fleeting and magical. Um, so, so yeah, I feel like actually it's like my work was, has been personal since I started making choreography. It's, I've always found that the ideas come out of stuff, like scenes that's happening in the news or in my life or kind of general, you know, these general trends. I feel like the, like feminism is a massive trend for me and um, it's a theme that I 
like I keep on referencing, even if I, even if it's just like a filter that I run my work through. So one of my interests is, which actually in the article that I mentioned by this dancer who was saying ballet should just embrace feminism, mm-hmm. that idea of like why do why do men still do all the jumps and women still do all the point work and if you know if the men are doing the point work it's it's funny because it's the trucks like or it's you know the ugly stepsister in in Cinderella like um, I remember seeing a really interesting piece in Australia years ago by Bangara Dance Theatre where the men wore point shoes and it was a very tribal like organic um, completely without irony this dance where they were they were holding sticks and dancing on points and they looked like stick creatures like they looked like insects or and it was really spiritual and beautiful and and otherworldly and not like they weren't trying to be like oh ha 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 look at these boys wearing point shoes doing girl stuff like it was it was really just this is an extension of the you know the capacity of the body look at this Mm. cool like trick that and I was like oh why like point should point work should be like that so actually I've um I've worked a couple of times with Julia Gleick have you um come across her work she runs the counterpoint platform which um she's her group is called Norte Mar and um it's a consortium of artists and they run this counterpoint platform counter and then point like p-o-i-n-t-e like with the point shoe and it's specifically to offer women choreographers an opportunity to make work using point shoes. And um, quite a lot of the people who present work there are much more experimental choreographers than, like, they're not just... I mean, I'm making quite... Um, my my work is quite sort of, like, I don't know, um, typical contemporary ballet. Like, I, it's dancers making movement, but there are people who... Who, whose ideas are far more like um, transgressive and experimental. Um, and that's one of the platforms where I've had an opportunity to work and then see other people's work and to think about that concept of like, who gives you permission to make a choreography and call it ballet and use point work. And when, when, she, when I first did her platform, it was kind of like the first time that I felt brave enough to, to wear point shoes on stage mm-hmm. and say that, and say that what I did was contemporary ballet because I think there is this perception that like there's a lot of judgment in ballet and there's a lot of people telling you whether you're doing it right or wrong and um, and I think the movement now with female choreographers and you know maybe just independent choreographers in general like saying wait let me take this material of ballet and mess with it a bit and and that being okay, that's quite that's quite more modern and mm-hmm. it's a quite a new thing. Like the whole idea of independent choreographers in classical ballet is quite um, it's it well it doesn't really happen because you need such a huge amount of infrastructure to have a ballet company and create a high quality world class dance work. You know, like ballet companies, you you need. You need the facilities. You need a. Um, you need it to be safe. But I mean, I think that's why things are. You know, if you can make your work be a bit more experimental and and account for the fact that you're working in not the perfect conditions for the traditional classical ballet, then you actually have a lot more freedom to expand the form according to the circumstances within your the, that you're making that work. So yeah, that's been it's been really good for me to have those platforms, even if it's um yeah, like in general it's hard to get work made. But then there there is that there's kind of this movement of people in the dance world who want to push the boundaries and make new stuff and not necessarily they're not connected to big companies or they don't have a huge amount of independent funding but it's kind of like a there's an energy around it, so there, there are people who who encourage me to keep going because they appreciate what I'm doing and they want to see me do more. <laughs> so, um, so you know, like I, um, um, yeah. So, the, so the pieces. So anyway, getting back to the pieces, I'm 
making for, well, I'm taking to Ed Fringe. Um, we're doing To The Edge, which is the first piece I made with, at, on Julia Glock's platform for Counterpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, and that piece is about kind of the trying, like sort of being, feeling like you have to escape, but then being drawn back to the support and security that you have. Um, so that's kind of a kind of um, coming of age um, journey kind of story. Um, and that, and then Argyle is a very feminine piece. It's very, it's very strong. It, the, the, the movement's really pacey. It's quite physically challenging. It's going in and out of the floor using the shoes quite um, experimentally. I mean, yeah, like a lot of people now are doing that stuff, like making contemporary choreography using ballet dancers wearing point shoes. So it's actually, it's not like super groundbreaking, but... Um, but I'm sort of like working within that language of like trying to blend contemporary and classical themes. So um, I wanted to ask as well. So um, you've, you, you say you've got these three pieces going up to Ed Fringe, but how long have you actually had hack ballets um, sort of as a formation now? How, how long have you? Concept, I sort of came up with that um that formulation of Hack Ballet as a dance company in 2011, just before. So 2012, we sort of, we debuted um, Zone, and that was like a response to, was it 2013? Like we started working on it um, as a response to the Olympics. And at the time I was working part-time in a trading firm. Mm -hmm. And just that exposure to like... um, really intense intellectual like uh, IT finance people who also have this very dedicated and um, focused attitude to success and high performance and I felt there was a lot of um, crossover between in, in terms of the like the mental zone you have to be in to be successful at either a dance or in any other field like that um that I, I observed and experienced the sense of having to really streamline your focus and d- disregard your own feelings and other people around you and just kind of like focus on your goal and just go for your goal no matter what. Um, yeah, but I think I always wanted to, um, I always thought I was going to start a company. Really? I just wasn't sure. Yeah, like when I was in school, I was. I, that's my. that was my intention. But I thought I would work as a dancer first. I wanted to like, work for 10 years as a dancer and then start a company, which other dancers have done, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't, I could name check, I'm not going to. Like, um, people who get sort of more mainstream support from inside the, the um, existing institutions where they go and work for a brand and then they then branch out on their own to become mm-hmm. a choreographer in their own right. Um, and I would have been happy to do that, but I didn't get a job. So I just started making work. And um, and then I've worked as freelance for a while. Um, and I, yeah, now I feel like, okay, well, that's just what I'm doing. But yeah, I was always, I always really wanted to have mm, my own dance company or to just be a choreographer. But actually, I think I always imagined that I would have a company. Um, and and has, it, has the experience been sort of everything that you imagined? Is it as you sort of... No, but no. nothing ever is. Really? Like, no. <laughs> nothing in nothing that I've done has ever worked out the way I imagined. But I am learning to embrace that. Like, it's that's actually life, you know? Like, yeah. what you imagine in your head can only come out of the knowledge you have from before you do it. Do you know what I mean? Like, um. you, you see stuff from the outside, so you can imagine what it would be like to do that thing that you observe with your eyes seeing somebody else do it. But when you do it, it's going to be different. And when you move forward in time, it's going to be different. And when the world changes around you, mm. that's going to be different. So actually, I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure if you ask anyone in their 30s, it, it, are you doing the thing you imagined you would be doing when you left school at 18, nobody will say, yes, exactly. Everything works out exactly as I, as I planned. Well, you know, maybe if you can find that person, <laughs> that would be a really interesting conversation. Like... Um, and, and, you know, unless like, unless their world doesn't change that much. Like some people maybe have a more, I don't know. But I, I just don't think you can particularly, like ever really 
fully imagine all of your experiences, no. what they're going to be like in the future, and it's going to be the same. So, yeah, I don't know. Why do you need to ask the question, though? Like, what what is it you're trying to find out from asking that question? Well, because for me it leads on to the question of, you know, what is your vision for the future? And as you say, you know, you can – it, it never turns out exactly, but of yeah. course we always have this vision and we always continue to work towards it, even though, we, as you just said, well, don't necessarily... Well, maybe I don't have a vision, but maybe I have, like, maybe it's more like a manifesto or um, I have things... So, like, I'm particularly interested in gender and, and feminism and hashtag me too and giving everyone not just women but everyone a a bigger idea of what they what they're allowed to do and making it so that people don't feel so much like shame and guilt and uncertainty and self-doubt and judgment of others because of the the sense that they need to conform mm-hmm. to gender norms mm-hmm. um so that's one of my like big sort of life themes. And then, you know, other I've got other themes that are to do with making more work and and reaching more dancers. Like dancers that I work with enjoy my work because of that sense of like variety and freedom and and I give them quite a lot of if they like that, you know, if they like that um the agency and that responsibility for themselves, then they like that, you know, all my, they just like my style. I don't know. But I, I think I want to see ballet be bigger. I, I don't want to see ballet die as an art form or become mm-hmm. too stuck in still reproducing the old ideas. Um, so, you know, like the movements, in that are afoot in the the bigger you know dance scene generally like getting more female choreographers to mm. make work on big companies hearing more voices from um people that maybe not be the the obvious like um the obvious choice like mm. i i feel like in general i'd like to see equality advance in our society and um, and part of that includes access to and control of and direction of our art and maybe um, it's this it's this like quite tense um, conversation between our traditions and how we teach you know our peers and the next generation about what they need to learn and why it's important and valuable and then also what we make that's new so like the you know the big opera houses and theaters around the world that are reproducing traditional work everyone sort of agrees that that's a good thing Mm -hmm. but then there's always going to be these these tensions around um, recreating political ideas from a previous era and then whether there's enough other ideas also available to, for people to realize that like, that's, it's historical and it doesn't have to be that way now. Um, so I feel like if there were, you know, the, the, the attempts around the world of companies to make new full-length ballets that are, that are of our time and that represent people as they are now, and especially, you know, how much things are changing socially in terms of women's rights and um, LGBTQ rights and all that, you know, like and minorities and um, making things much more plural and and um, representation being a big part of that. Like, I think that's a really important theme. But yeah, I don't know. Uh, like, I I feel like I'm doing the next thing that comes up in front of me that seems accessible. And if something bigger comes up in front of me, then I'll do that. Um, so, again, it's kind of like um, I can only do the things that I know exist um, or that are the next step on from something that I already have seen or imagined. Mm. So there might be 
other things that are bigger that I haven't come across yet. But yeah, I, do, I really love the um, I really love my global network. I really love that I I have good friends and colleagues and people that I respect that I love working with and spending time with, and they're all over the world. Um, and I'd love to take Hack Ballet, you know, to all the places where my amazing people are, um, and share what we do with people that appreciate it. Um, so yeah, I'm talking like I'm talking to a festival now in Australia about taking some work there. Um, we, you know, we're we're here and we're available, and I'm I'm kind of doing what I have done already, and then waiting for the next opportunity to do something new. Um, but you know, there's there's always tension around um, justifying your work economically and. Um, and knowing what the value is um, in today's economy. And that, I feel like, is one of our biggest challenges for the arts generally, is just how pervasive the whole, like, economic rationalism ideas are in terms of what's the bottom line and um, why are we making art, like, provide all these social services, like... Can, can we just make art because we want to make art or do we have to make art because it's good for us? Do you know what I mean? Like, are you eating your Brussels sprouts because you like Brussels sprouts or, or do you want to make ice cream or do you want to make a chocolate cake or do you want to have a roast dinner? Like, um, I don't know. I don't know if you get that analogy. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. there's, there's a pressure in, um, there's a pressure in art funding for art to, um, take all these boxes of what it's going to benefit everyone. You know, like it's going to it's going to engage um, disadvantaged youth, or it's going to um, improve the adherence to physical exercise of older adults. Or there's and there's all these kind of ex, like there these things are benefits. Like you when you do when you do get involved in the arts, you do experience these benefits, and it's this kind of it's the tension between quantifying art and making it be measurable, which um, comes out of science and, and our, you know, analysis of things and trying to pinpoint like what it is about it that makes it worthwhile and how can you compare, you know, a beautiful rose mm. with a new building, mm. with a storage system, with, <laughs> with a car, like um, how, how do we make decisions as people about what we want to do in our lives? we sort of try to have this kind of triple bottle bottom line and like add up all the things and get an equation at the end. It's like the algorithmic approach to everything. Mm. Um, and, and as we've all realized, like the algorithmic approach doesn't always, we're not always satisfied with those answers. So there's still going to be this kind of like, there's the ephemeral stuff that we, it's finally hard to, to put words to why we do it. And actually sometimes you know, I spend a lot of time reflecting on the socio-political um, motivations behind what I'm doing and I can do that and it's great and it's really interesting but I'm not necessarily any happier as a result of doing that reflection like maybe I understand things but understanding yeah I don't know like it's it's just one of the things so I've, I've contemplated doing a PhD but I've got too many topics and I haven't narrowed them down yet <laughs> um, so so the practice of research idea as well really appeals to me, like doing, like can we create a way of a language around um, talking about what we do that makes the art, that gives the art experience of making and doing art the equal value to like other forms of knowledge, um, which, you know, comes out of philosophy of language and um, philosophy of knowledge, kind of, um, which is, you know, all these Western ideas of what is valuable and what is truth and how can we know things. Yeah. So, <laughs> it's yeah. kind of like, yeah, it's interesting, but it's kind of everything all at once and that it's very big. Yeah. Well, you've, you've had this really interesting journey and just listening to you um, with your uh, incredible ability to be able to um, really express yourself. I just, I've been sitting here for the last hour, just really engrossed with everything that you've been saying and thinking, yeah, wonderful to be able to have 
that ex- that expression, even verbally, to, you know, for people to listen to and think, well, this is what's going on within the the dance world, and this is the types yeah. of conversations and the types of thinking and the types of feeling and the types of administration and the challenges that are are being experienced yeah. today. I mean, this is something that is very important for dancers to realize as well that dancers actually have a voice, and sometimes. Yeah. They, we, we're often sort of reduced to our bodies and reduced to what we look like. And, but there is a lot of politics and thinking behind what we're doing. And it's important for people to realize that what they're doing has these kind of social and political ramifications. And it's more than just appearance. It's actually, there's a lot of philosophy going on behind our practices, you know, it's meditation or it's, yeah, it's physical fitness or it's beauty. They're, these are all like, yeah, sociological concepts that that um, that dancers could have very um, interesting opinions on, and people might want to hear what they say. So, Absolutely. yeah, it's really interesting to see those um, those connections in across the art into the more general culture and society. Yeah, definitely. And I just wanted to ask you a final question. Um, given your um, your journey so far, and it's to continue, there's clearly so much that you are currently doing and are going to be doing in the future. But what advice would you give to other aspiring dancers who, you know, particularly I, I sort of resonate with that story about, you know, the dancer in Australia and, you know, the mm-hmm. what's not necessarily available and the requirement really to be able to ship off to another country and to, to find mm-hmm. uh, an industry that is, um, you know, more full. But what advice would you give to other aspiring dancers who might think, well, actually, my voice, my thought, um, the experiences that I've been through, perhaps I'd like to run my own company. What advice would you give to others? That, um, I'm pretty sure that when you first asked me this question, um, when you first sent me the questions, I kind of had a great answer. Now, <laughs> forgotten. I think it's a it's a tough question, tough one. But it's, but it's maybe like on the on like just offhand from what I'm thinking about now. Mm. It's actually to try to avoid the scary negative ways of being too self-critical and too. Um, judgmental of yourself and others when things don't work out the way you were told they would or the, the way that you expected. Um, a kind of things don't look the way they look now and they won't stay the same forever. I guess maybe it's about being flexible about like who who you're looking to for advice and using your actual real life experience to um, to inform you about your decisions and using what gives you pleasure and joy as a kind of um, a cipher. Like if you love something, um, insert expletive, go and do it. Like go, go and go and make more of what you love. And and tell everyone why you love it, even if it's kind of embarrassing or you think it's like, oh, it's not so cool, you know? Like, um, if you find something really inspiring, go and do it. Don't expect other people to get it. Like, other people often, <laughs> they are on their own journey of judgment and their fixed ideas of their, from their past, and um, they might not understand what you're doing. Um, so don't judge them for not, for judging you or don't judge them for not getting it mm-hmm. but continue to um to explore what what switches you on and makes you excited and look further into that and and um understand that you're not going to get it straight away and um yeah it, it like i don't know for me it's taken so long to get somewhere that i feel like it's did i really even i don't even know if i am anywhere now but like I guess the the thing that keeps you alive is when you're doing something that you do really believe in yourself. And I guess this is something I tell other dancers as well, is like don't just wait around for choreographers to give you jobs. Mm-hmm. Like 
why don't you spread the stuff that you love, you know, help people to, um, to get people to come to their shows and to support their ideas and to um, support that, you know, when, when people have fundraising campaigns, like do that like and share thing, you know, like yeah. if you help others in the industry, it's, it's a real golden circle, isn't it? Like you help others and then you will receive help in as well, you know, like show your generosity and your, um, and how much you appreciate others. Tell people when you love their work and tell people um, about stuff that you love and kind of, because the world is full of horrible, you know, there's, there's a lot of destruction and there's a lot of evil kind of, of, of people who are deprived and people who are angry and people who want to tear things down. Mm-hmm. And it, I mean, I, it sounds like a cliche, but the more that you put something positive out in the world, it kind of like tries to counteract those the negative side and just, you know, that I guess not taking too seriously people that tell you that you're wrong or put you down or tell you that you shouldn't be doing what you're doing because those people just have their opinion <laughs> and, <laughs> and and eventually like you you are the industry does that like does that make sense like this yeah. is the industry you are it you are the next generation you are the voice you are the are someone who actually has agency and power to promote stuff that you believe in and you are a customer and you are a producer and you are a creative and don't wait for other people to tell you what is and isn't true go with your own experience um that is, that is that is such great yeah. advice, and it sort of for me draws yeah. a, a couple of points you made earlier about being part of a global network, a dance community, and totally. building your I mean, own tribe. Yes, and I have found people that do love what I do, and often it's because you go to them and say, "Hey, I really like what you're doing." Yeah, like you see someone in class and you smile at them and say wow, you're a great dancer, where are you from? Like, this is, you know, it's really great to meet you. That, it's that little, the thing where you reach out and, and compliment someone else or you give energy to someone else because you appreciate them, that gives them that little bubble of like, oh, someone noticed me. Like, yeah. everybody wants to connect. You know, human beings, like, ultimately, when you get, like, go below while we're making ballet and dance, whatever, it's a, it's a human culture. It's, an, it's a language of expression. We're trying to connect with each other because they're all getting lonely and lost in the world and stuck in our own heads inside our own skulls so Mm -hmm. everybody actually wants to connect and even the people that you think are so amazing and so incredible and you could never even talk to them because you're just like nothing and you're scum under the the bottom of their boots like those people still want love right like (laughs) and they're lovely people actually when you do talk to them lovely people and they're probably you know, really scared of judgment and really scared of going wrong themselves and really, they really want to do well and they really want you to like their next piece or their next, you know, solo or or they're trying to look after their mom or they're trying to look after their kid, you know, like everyone is a real human being and has real thoughts and feelings and, and that incredibleness is it's both a blessing and a curse for them. So maybe you try and reach out to them. Don't be offended if they, you know, are not in the mood to be reached out to because that can happen as well. But like, Sometimes the best things happen when you step up and go, well, maybe if I offer something and see what happens. But it's taking a risk and that's frightening. So you have to be brave. And, yes, it doesn't ever get any easier. You're going to still need to be brave forever. Oh, Brian. And I, I hear, you know, <laughs> that is, a lot of that, artists say that, don't you? Like, it's always it's always a tra- challenge. Yeah, but I think, you know, it's, it's such, such great advice and, you know, it was such an inspiring story for yourself. I just want to thank you so much for sharing it with us. And no I just want to also give a bit of a shout out to your website, you know, hackballet.com. So if people yep. want to learn more about your choreography, the classes and workshops that you hold and more about the yep. company and what's coming up at either Edge Fringe or hopefully the Australian Festival and other work, yeah, to, to reach out to you and uh, to track you down on your website and on your socials. Thank you so much, Briar. Don't forget to subscribe. We've got some incredible interviews coming up with principal ballerinas and renowned choreographers. We love dance and ballet, and we hope you'll love us. Join us on Facebook and Twitter.